Well, thank you all for worshiping through singing, and now we're going to spend some time worshiping through the Word together. Uh, my name is Justin Knowles. I'm the teaching pastor here at Ingleside, and we're going to look at part of Romans chapter 7 this morning. Uh, so if you have your Bible with you and want to open it up, we'll be in Romans chapter 7 in the New Testament. And also get out a listening outline and a pen so you can write some things in along the way. And as you do that, let me say welcome to those of you in the contemporary service and those of you joining us online and on television. I'm really glad that you could be with us today as well. Uh, now, many of you may know that when uh, a person here at Ingleside is interested in being baptized, uh, they meet with one of our pastors. And it gives us a chance to uh, just hear directly from them and talk about the gospel and their faith in Jesus and why baptism matters. We get to have some great conversation. And uh, I've been very uh, blessed over the years to have lots of those conversations with people here. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was meeting with an elementary aged young man who was interested in being baptized. And uh, so I met with him and his parents. And sure enough, a little while before we had met, before we met, he had uh, repented of his sin and confessed faith in Christ. And he was excited to talk about baptism. But as we met, he had sort of one lingering question. One thing he really still wanted to talk about and get a little clarity on. And it was basically this. He basically said, well, I believe in Jesus, but I still sin. And so how can I really know for sure that I'm actually a Christian? And it's an important question. It's a great question. It's a question that I've heard over the years in a variety of forms. It really comes down to the issue of a Christian's relationship to sin. You know, if I uh, sinned before I was a Christian and I sin now that I am a Christian, well, what's the difference? If I know people that don't even claim to be Christians and they sin, and I know people who say they've been following Jesus for a real long time and they still sin too, well, what's really the difference? That's the question this young man was wrestling with. And, of course, part of the difference is that... Uh, as you're in Christ, you'll sin less and less. But I think there's something even more fundamental that takes place, a more fundamental difference that leads to us sinning less and less. And that's what I wanted him to help him understand that day and what I want us to see biblically today. And so I took him to Romans 7, the passage we're looking at this morning. And here's basically what we see. I'll just sort of give you the punchline at the beginning here. It might help us as we move forward. Basically what we see is that, that, yeah, Christians still sin, but when we do, we hate it. We have a very different attitude about God's commands and about our own sin. And so we struggle with sin. And the struggle itself is a difference. Non-believers don't really struggle with sin. They just sin. It's when you're in Christ, you begin a lifelong battle with sin. But we also see that that battle won't last forever. And so we're going to see that in Romans 7 this morning. Now, if you've been reading chapter a day with this, and I hope you are, uh, you'll know we're currently reading the book of Romans. That's one reason why we're looking at this passage this morning. And so I thought it might be helpful to have just a basic outline of the book of Romans as you are reading and studying and applying it in your life. And it can also give us a little context for what we're looking at this morning. So would you write this in on your listening outline? The first part of Romans, the first big section, 
primarily teaches us that all have sinned and deserve God's wrath. Well, if we were going to sum it up in just a word, it focuses on sin. Uh, regardless of your religious background or church background or family background, we are all in that boat together. All have sinned and deserve God's wrath. But the next big section teaches us that in Christ we are justified. Would you write that in? We are justified. When you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus, you are in Christ and his perfection or righteousness is credited to you. And as a result, you are declared innocent before the Lord. You are put in right standing before God. It's an amazing truth by his grace. The next section, Romans 6 and 7, emphasizes the fact that in Christ we are also changed. It's a process of becoming more and more like Jesus, what we often call sanctification. Romans 8 tells us that in Christ we have the hope of glory. There's a promise for those who are in Christ that one day we will be with the Lord forever in glory. Chapters 9 through 11, uh, just a fascinating section of scripture and incredibly worshipful, uh, emphasizes the fact that God is sovereign in our salvation, what we call the doctrine of election. That word is found right there in that passage. Of course, it also teaches us that all of us have a responsibility to respond to the gospel in faith. We have a responsibility to tell everybody we possibly can about Jesus. So he teaches that right there as well. And then in chapter 12, sort of turns a little bit of a corner and begins to tease out, write it in, some of the practical applications of all the doctrine, all the theology, everything that's been said up to that point. He says, all right, now here's some implications of that for how you live. And so that's a bit of a framework for us this morning as we focus in on one specific passage and one part of that. Again, the end of chapter 7, which provides for us some clarity concerning a Christian's relationship to sin. And here's a little bit of a summary for what we'll see in this passage, the difference between really how non-Christians and Christians uh, relate to God's commands and our own sin. There's a big difference, and this is what I want us to see. Would you write this in? The non-Christians deny God's authority in one way or another. They'll say, well, the Bible's not really God's word, or not all of it, or that's not really what it means, or I just don't want to have anything to do with it anyway. The Bible's just another book. But in some way, it's a denial of God's authority. I don't have to do what it says. And then non-Christians will justify their sin. You know, I might say, well, it's not a big deal, or it's not even wrong at all. Or, well, that's just sort of where culture is right now. And that's just how things are. That's just how I am. That's me. In some way, they're justifying their sin. And as a result, then, non-Christians will walk in their sin, continue to live in it, embrace the sin. They're okay with it because they don't see anything wrong with it. And so it's a life of what the Bible would call sin and even an acceptance of that. Christians, on the other hand, those who are in Christ, who have been made new in him. It's very different. Write this in. Christians delight in God's authority. We love it. We don't try to deny it. Wouldn't want to. We love God's authority. 
And then Christians confess their sin. We don't try to justify it or excuse it. We acknowledge. We sometimes do things that are wrong, that are sinful, and we confess that to the Lord. And as a result, then, Christians repent of their sin. We'd say, I don't want to continue in that pattern. I don't want to continue that way of life. I don't want to continue doing that sin over and over. I really do want to follow Jesus. It's repentance. And so you can see a significant difference then. That, that, yeah, both sin, but the disposition towards sin is very different. In fact, it reminds me of a story I read about the late President Calvin Coolidge. One Sunday morning, he went to church by himself. His wife wasn't able to go that day. And so when he returned home, his wife asked him what the pastor preached about. And Coolidge told her he preached about sin. Well, she wanted a little bit more than that. And so she pressed him. And so what did he say about sin? Apparently, Coolidge was a man of few words. And so he thought for a minute. And then he finally said, well, I think he's against it. You would hope that would be the case, wouldn't you? That the pastor would be against sin. And as obvious as that may sound and may be, it's actually a really profound and significant characteristic of a follower of Jesus that we're truly, genuinely against sin, including our own. And that's part of what we see here in Romans chapter 7. So let's look at this. Paul uh, talks about himself and his own experience, provides himself as an example for us. But I imagine we can all really relate to what he says here. So he starts off this section in verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So would you write this in, that Christians believe God's standards are perfect, though we are still sinful. He talks here about the law, and he does throughout this passage. He's really talking about God's commands, God's standards, or we might just say more broadly, God's word. And he says that it's spiritual. It's a way of saying it's from God. It's of divine origin, which would mean it's perfect, and it's completely authoritative then. And so that's really his starting point as he begins to describe the struggle with sin. I love this. He says, first off, we've got to be clear that God's word is the authority. God's word is what decides what's right and wrong. And as a follower of Jesus, I'm going to submit my life to that. Whatever God says is right, is right. What he says is wrong, is wrong. What he says is good, is good. And I'm going to live my life under his authority. That's where he starts and that's evidence of a changed heart. If that's your sort of attitude toward or disposition toward God's word, that is a great thing. It's evidence of his work of grace in your heart that you would see his word in that way. So Paul says, look, the law is spiritual, it's perfect, but I am of the flesh. It's a way of saying he's still a sinful person. He's saying God's standards are perfect, but I'm not. That's the problem. The problem isn't the commands. It's not like they need to change to conform to me. He's saying God's standards are perfect. The problem is that I'm not. In fact, he even says that he's sold under sin. And that's really interesting because just before this, 
Paul has really emphasized that those who are in Christ aren't slaves to sin anymore. Saying we've been set free from that. So what he means here, I think, is that even though we've been set free, we can still go back and live like slaves to sin. And sometimes, unfortunately, we do. And so do you feel the the tension? I mean, right away in this first verse, the struggle. God's commands are perfect, but I am not. I still sin. And we're going to see over and over again are those two things of in a heart that is changed, that desires to do what's right and good according to God's standards, but also an honest acknowledgement that we don't always do it. And there's a real struggle there. But one of the takeaways from that is that the struggle itself is a good sign. This is a man who's wanting to obey the Lord and wanting to grow in holiness and obedience. See it again in the next section, verse 15, here's how he puts it. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. Uh, I wonder if anybody can relate to that ever. Even I'm not entirely sure why I do some of the things I do. (laughs) Why did I respond that way? Why did those words come out? Why do I still think that sometimes? Paul says, man, even I don't even understand everything I do. Listen, he says, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's a little bit of a mouthful, isn't it? But here's really what he's saying. Write it in. Number two, that Christians desire to do what is good, though we still have sin within. I mean, did you hear him over and over saying, I want to do what's good and I don't want to do what's sinful. That's the desire of his heart. I genuinely want to please the Lord. I want to obey him. I want to live up to his standards. That's what I want. But I don't always do it. And he says, it's because there's still sin that that dwells in us. It's what we call indwelling sin. It simply means that uh, when you place your faith in Christ, not all of your sinful desires and tendencies are taken away right then in that moment. That's what that young man that I was meeting with sort of needed to hear. He was sort of expecting that. And man, it'd be nice if that happened. I mean, I trust God's wisdom. That's not how he designed things. But aren't there times you really wish he would just take away all your temptations and sinful desires? And but the reality is we still have indwelling sin. And we got to deal with that. We need to acknowledge it and we got to deal with it. And so Paul does. He says, I want to do what's right, but I have this indwelling sin. And then he concludes, so when I I do what's wrong then, when I sin, he's saying, it's not really me, but it's sin that's in me. What does he mean there? Is he using that as an excuse for his sin? Is, Is Paul going, hey, when I sin, that's not really me. That's just that sin that's in me. So it's not my fault. Of course not. Here's what he's getting at. The Bible teaches us that when you place your faith in Jesus, when you believe in him, 
that you are so fundamentally and profoundly changed that it's like you're a whole new person. In fact, the Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. That your desires and affections and values have been changed so much that you're now a new person in Christ Jesus. And that is now your fundamental primary identity. It's who you are in Christ. And as someone who's in Christ, we begin to live differently. But we don't do that always. Sometimes we still go back and live like who we used to be. Often there's a disconnect between who we are and how we live. And much of the Christian life is about closing that gap. It's about us becoming in practice who we are in Christ. And by God's grace and a work of his spirit, that can actually happen. We make progress in that. And more and more we live out our new identity in Christ. But Paul is just highlighting the fact here, we don't do that perfectly. And so he's saying, look, when I sin, that's not the new me. That's not who I am at the core. Now that I'm in Christ, that's the old me. And I'm still dealing with that. I still have sin in me and I hate that. And he's not using this as an excuse. He's pointing it out as a problem. He's saying, I want to do what's right, but there's still sin. And I battle it. I struggle with it. I hate it. He's acknowledging the reality. We want to do what's good, but we still have sin within. He says something similar, just worded a little differently. Verse 21, he says, so I find it to be a law. And here, when he uses the word law, he's talking about a principle. He's saying, I find this principle uh, to be true, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So would you write this in? Christians desire to do what's right, though we still deal with evil. Just evil around us. Paul's acknowledging that. He's saying, I want to do what's right. And of course, often he did. If you know the life of Paul, he was, the pattern of his life was one of obedience to the Lord. And that can be true for you too. But he's just sort of saying, look, even when I want to do what's right, it's not always quite that simple or quite that easy. Why? Because, man, there's, there's sin around us and there's pressure around us to conform to the pattern of this world. And uh, there are lies from Satan that we hear all the time. And there's internal desires we've seen that still aren't right. There's still sin within us. And so even when we want to do what's right, we still got to deal with all that. You ever get sort of frustrated or annoyed by that? Like, you're sort of feeling, man, I'm just trying to obey Jesus. Can't that be easy? Like, just for a minute? <laughs> Hey, that's what he's expressing here. Yeah, I love the honesty. It's helpful, I think, to have that clarity that a lot of us who are in Christ, we can relate to that. Saying, I really want to do what's right. There's just so much evil around and within, and we're, we're waging war against that. Look at verse 22. He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Man, I love this. I love how he words it here. He says, I delight in the law of God. Would you write this in? The Christians delight in God's standards, though we still have sinful tendencies. 
sort of going beyond just acknowledging that they're authoritative and it's acknowledging that they're good. Saying not only do I I know that God's commands and his standards are right, I also genuinely believe that they're good. That they're good for me. That they're best. And I delight in that. It's more evidence of a changed heart. It's a heart that doesn't just sort of reluctantly try your best to obey what God says, but a heart that says, I love what God says. I see the beauty of his standards. You know, when a person who's in Christ and made new reads, for example, the command in the Bible to store treasures in heaven and not on earth, we don't read that and think, man, I wish that wasn't the case. I sure do want a lot of treasures right here on earth. I mean, I guess I'll try to store them up on heaven because that's what God says I should do. But man, I really want them here on earth. Oh, we delight in that command. We see the goodness of it. We celebrate it. A person who's in Christ understands the the biblical standard for marriage and sexuality. We don't see that and, and wish that it was otherwise. We see the goodness and the beauty in God's design. And we celebrate that. Delight in his commands. Reminds me of David in Psalm 19 where he's talking about God's commands and laws and rules and precepts. And he's celebrating his beautiful description of how good they are. He says things like they're sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. And he ends by saying, by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there's actually great reward. It's at a heart that delights in God's Standards, evidence of a changed heart. But as soon as he acknowledges that, he adds on the other part. But I don't always keep those commands. As good as they are, as much as I love them, I don't always live up to them. I mean, just a back and forth. God's commands are perfect and they're good and I want to keep them. I want to do what's right, but I don't always. I've got sin in me and evil around me and Just the tension, the struggle. Thinking and understand why he says what he does next. Verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would you write this in? That Christians will one day be freed from the struggle with sin by Jesus After describing this back and forth, this tension so much, he finally sort of looks at himself and goes, I am wretched. I know I'm a sinner and I've still got sin in me and I don't meet God's standards and I hate that. And is there anything or anyone that will ever change this situation? Is there any hope for it ever being any different? Is there any chance this battle ends one day? Is there someone who can deliver me? And as soon as he raises the question, he gives us the answer. What does he say? Is there anyone who can deliver me? Yes. And is name is Jesus. He's going to feel this tension, this lifelong battle, but he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who will deliver me. It won't be this way forever. How does that happen? Well, part of it is what we're seeing here. It's that change of heart that leads to us living differently. And that's an ongoing process. In fact, uh, 2 Corinthians 3 says that as we behold the glory of Christ, 
that we're actually transformed from one degree of glory to another. That as we see Jesus more truly and more fully and we love him more fully, it actually changes us in such a way that we live differently. It's a process that begins when you're in Christ and it continues for the rest of your life. And aren't you so thankful that in Philippians 1, Paul says that he who began this work in you will in fact be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. That work of sanctification, of freeing you from sin, of you living differently, oh, it's gonna be completed in every sense one day. John puts it this way in 1 John 3. He says, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When we see him face to face, that process of our hearts being changed will be completed. We'll no longer have divided hearts. We'll no longer have to struggle with sin. We'll no longer have to wage war on sin. We'll be completely sanctified, fully glorified in the presence of Christ. So the sinful desires and tendencies aren't there anymore. They're just perfect God-honoring desires and tendencies that lead to an eternity then of perfect worship and honoring of him. Oh, that day's coming. This reminds me of a story I read recently a lady named Florence Chadwick, who in 1952 decided she wanted to swim from the Catalina Islands off the coast of California to the mainland. It would be a swim of about 26 miles in the ocean. She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways, so it was apparently a pretty realistic goal for her. On the day she began her swim, the weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats that were accompanying her. But still, she swam for 15 hours. When she was begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother, who was in a boat beside her, told her she was close and she could make it. But finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was only about a half mile away. At the news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. A little bit of a side note, a couple months later, she tried again. and She said she just kept a mental image of the shore in her mind and she made it. I think it's a reminder that sometimes we just sort of need to know, need to be reminded that there is an end, that the struggle will not last forever, that rest is possible and we can make it. I think that's what Paul is telling us, reminding us of in this verse when he says, look, there is deliverance. This struggle will not last forever. It'll last a lifetime, but it won't last forever. When you see Jesus face to face, the battle will end. The struggle will end and your heart will be fully at rest. Now, I think that'd be a great place to end. I wish we could just say amen and just go out talking about Jesus and victory. That'd be great. But Paul doesn't stop there. One more time, he sort of brings up the tension. 
He says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Uh, That same tension, he brings it up again. Why? Doesn't Paul know you should end on a high note? I think he's just driving home the point that even though that day is coming, it's not here yet. For now, this is our experience. We're called to do battle against our sin, to mortify it, to wage war against it, to strive for holiness every day of our lives. And by God's grace, by a work of his spirit, working through the word in community with others, we can. We can continue to follow Jesus faithfully and make progress along the way. So what should we do with that today? Well, I think part of it, one reason I wanted us to look at this, I think it can just be helpful to have some clarity about our situation, to acknowledge we're in Christ, we have a very different attitude about sin, we'll grow in the Lord, and we're still going to struggle with sin. It's helpful just to acknowledge that. But I also hope for those of you that are in Christ, that this is a real encouragement to stay in the battle day by day. Keep fighting. Don't give up by just giving in to sin. It's a lot easier to give in, isn't it? A lot easier. This passage is an encouragement not to do that. To keep saying, I I really believe God's word is true and it's good and it's authoritative and man, I wanna obey the Lord. So here are a few things that can help in that process. Now, this all, we'll see here, presupposes the reality, the presence, and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But in terms of some steps we can take as we battle sin day by day, would you write it in? A couple things to remember. First, we need to remember how bad sin is. We can forget that sometimes, but the aim of sin is to destroy your life. It might be restrained along the way for various reasons, but that's the end goal of sin. And so if you give into it, maybe it's playing with fire. But the flip side is remember how good God is. And the thief comes to still kill and destroy, but Jesus came that you might have life and have it abundantly. He's someone you can trust, who you can listen to, who you can follow with confidence. So in those moments where you're having to decide, am I gonna live like who I am now or who I used to be? Remember how good he is. And then remove temptation as much as you can. You can't always, but even Jesus said, look, if your eye causes you to sin, get rid of it. If your hand causes you to sin, get rid of it. What he means is if there's some temptation that keeps winning and you can do something about it, do. There's some changes you need to make, make those changes. And then finally, write it in, run. Run from sin and to Jesus. Paul once told a young pastor named Timothy to flee the evil desires of youth and to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace together with, in community with, those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We could sum that up by saying, run away from sin and run to Jesus. Keep abiding in his word. Keep getting to know him. Let him change your life. And along the way, day by day, as you do battle with sin and grow and make progress, just keep in mind, you've got a savior who loves you so much, who's forgiven you, who is keeping you, who is changing you. 
and one day will ultimately deliver you from the battle. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your grace that saves us and your grace that changes us. And Lord, we look forward to the day when that process is complete. And we know you'll be glorified in that and we're gonna rejoice greatly in that. And even now along the way, Lord, I ask you to give us the grace we need to, to fight sin day after day, to follow you faithfully day in and day out in the midst of the struggle. And we pray that in the name of Jesus, amen.